And now, The Low Post. Welcome to a very special edition of The Low Post podcast. We're a month late, we're later than usual, but the tradition continues. The championship winning coach, it should be in the CBA, has to come on this podcast and tell fun <laughs> stories about winning a championship. And if you remember, before James Harden demanded a trade and before Damian Lillard demanded a trade and before a bunch of guys switched teams, in the actual basketball games, when the actual basketball teams are trying to win, the Denver Nuggets won the 2023 NBA title. Coach Michael Malone, how are you, sir? You know, when you say that, man, it seems like such a long time ago when we won the championship. But I'm doing great, uh, enjoying this summer and uh, spending as much time as I can with my family, Zach. And thank you for having me on. Let me start here because this is intended to be a fun episode. You know, this is like I I rarely get hokey on here, but I I love being at the game when the team wins because – it's it is the culmination of a life's work and and you're never guaranteed to get it and you got it. So I don't think I've ever seen a team hang around the arena longer <laughs> than you guys did after that game and the level of cigar smoke and champagne soakage and everything was unprecedented. But I want to ask you. I ask this of every coach that comes on in this situation is from from that um, from that night, and I don't know if you went to Vegas or if that was players only, I can't remember. Is there a conversation, you know, an aside, a, a moment with someone in your family, someone with the team that maybe you didn't expect to have a moment with, a, a memory that aside from the jubilation and the thrill of winning, a, a, a smaller moment with a person that you will always remember from that night? Well, and I would agree. It seemed like that night went on and on and on, and nobody wanted to leave the locker room. It was, uh, I don't think that no one wanted to lose the moment of winning the first championship in Nuggets history, 49 years in the making. Um, but as I, I as I reflected on the, the finals run, the world championship run, um, there's one moment that I've kind of gone back to quite a bit, and it wasn't even – after game five when we won it, it was going into game one at home. And Stan Kroenke and Josh Kroenke came down to my office before the game, maybe a little little less than an hour before tip-off. And uh, they came into my office to say good luck. And you have to understand, and I know you know this, Zach, but the Kroenke family, you know, their, their teams win championships. The Rams have just won a championship. The Avalanche have won championships. And you know, it was finally our turn to try and win one, and they're huge basketball fans. But when I saw how emotional and how much it meant to Stan Kroenke in a good way, he loves all of his teams, but uh, that was something that I felt so grateful to be working for and with a tremendous ownership group that had the wisdom to come down and just wish me good luck and and to see how much it truly meant you know, I'm not, it, there's no hiding the raw emotion of it. And that was probably one of the coolest moments of the whole playoffs for me was seeing a, a guy who is as, as successful as Stan Kroenke is, but he's a human being. He loves sports. He loves basketball. He loves the Nuggets. And uh, that will always stay with me. Were your parents at Game 5? Could they be there? You know, unfortunately, they um, they weren't able to come. And, and on a side note, you know, obviously – I never pressured them to come to any games in the playoffs. I knew if they could be there, they would be. 
I mean, like, and as I told my mother, she felt, you know, she felt really bad about not being there. And I said, Ma, you're here in my heart. I know if you could be here, you would be. But on a quick side note there, Stan Van Gundy, Jeff Van Gundy, talk about two amazing people. My father worked with both Jeff in New York and Stan in Orlando, and they called my father up, unbeknownst to me, going into game five, and they were going to fly him out on a private jet to be there for game five. And that, to me, is a unbelievable act of love, I guess. I mean, unselfishness, whatever you want to call it, it was incredible. And uh, that, that meant so much to my mother, my father, and me, but they weren't, were not able to be there. And once we got off the court and we did the on-court ceremony, I ran to the back and the first person I called was my father. And I couldn't call him one time because they can't watch the games together. My mother watches upstairs. My father watches in the basement. And I called my father up and thanked him and told him how much I loved him and appreciated everything he'd done for me, allowing me to get to this position. And then I called my mother and did the same thing and, and thanked her and told her how much I loved her and appreciated all they had sacrificed for me, my two brothers and my three sisters. And uh, and that was a special moment. Even though it was just on the phone, it was a special moment. Uh, Obviously, I can't even imagine what your phone is like for the 24 hours after you win (laughs) a championship. But was there was there a person that reached out? that you were like, wow, I don't even know this person had my number or I I haven't heard from this person in years. What a special thing to reach out. Was there somebody in that ilk? Well, I I would say uh, a few different answers there. Um, Coach Popovich, you know, he's obviously arguably the greatest NBA coach in the history of the game. Um, He was so influential in me getting a job in Cleveland with Mike Brown and Danny Ferry years ago. He was instrumental in helping me get a job at Monte Williams in New Orleans. And I would not have ever become a head coach in the NBA if it wasn't for Greg Popovich and everything he did for me and my family. And, you know, to have a, a text message, heartfelt text message, you know, a, a meaningful text message meant the world to me just because of who he is, the success he's had, and uh, the relationship that we have. Um, I got a Peyton Manning. I mean, um, you know, Throughout the whole playoff run, uh, how excited he was to watch our team. And he said, bring another championship home to the city of Denver. We need another one. And uh, when you think of Peyton Manning, you think of excellence uh, on and off the field. And that was really cool to get messages from him. And then I guess like going way back, I mean, I stay in touch with my high school coach, Bobby Farrell out of Seton Hall Prep in West Orange, New Jersey. Father Mike Kelly, the headmaster at Seton Hall Prep. People that, I'm going back to late 80s, high school teammates. The number of people I heard from that I had not heard from in years was uh, was just incredible. And uh, and, and how proud they were of the, not, not just winning it, but the journey. All the different steps along the way. And, and that was a really cool part of this celebration, if you will, is hearing from the people that care about you and had a lot to do with you getting to where we are right now. Now, I have heard through third parties. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. No, no. um, That you, how can I put this the right way? That you were a little chagrined at how much of a sensation your celebratory behavior at the parade became. how, How much of an internet hit it was. And that there was part of you 
that was advised or thought to yourself, boy, I wish I, I wish I had acted a little bit more like I had been there before. And I am here to tell you, Coach Malone, that those people and that part of you is incorrect because nobody would know better than a coaching lifer who is the son of a coaching lifer that you may damn well never, ever get there. And so the idea that you should act like you've been there before is wrong. You should act like you will maybe never, ever get there again. And if you, if you, I mean, not that you did anything crazy, you had fun, had a couple of drinks, gave some fun speeches. If there is any bit of you that got any pushback for that from anybody, those people are wrong. And if anything, you should have done it up even more. And that is not even a question. That's a statement. I enjoyed it. All NBA fans enjoyed it. And if I were ever on a team that won a championship and I had any role at all, it would be a miracle if I got out of the following 72 hours without either vomiting or being arrested or both. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And um, I'll be honest, I, I have not had any regret. I haven't said, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Um, I don't, I'm not a big social media person. My two daughters, I have two beautiful girls, Caitlin and Bridget, and they're on social media and they'll share with me sometimes really funny comments. But the one thing I did see that cracked me up was Nikola Jokic might be the MVP of the NBA, but Malone was definitely the MVP of the parade. And to your point, that was one of my messages. I think it was going into game three in Miami. They had beaten us in game two. And I, and I told our guys, like, for those of you in this room who think it's an automatic that we will be back here, you are wrong. And I, I asked DeAndre Jordan, who's been in the league a long time, Ish Smith, been in the league a long time, Jeff Green, in the league a long time. And tomorrow's not promised for anybody. And getting back to the NBA Finals is certainly not promised because things change quickly in this business. So uh, my wife was on the fire choke with me, with my girls, with Brian Bone and his family. And she was doing her best. She was trying to get me to slow down. You got a big speech to make. You know, you don't have to chug every beer they throw up in the fire truck. But um, that was a cool part. You talk about people who reached out to me, Zach. I heard so many people reach out and say, hey, that's the Mo Malone that I know. You let your hair down. You and I mean, then to get like, I was on the phone with Steve Kerr. And Steve Kerr, who's won how many? Four. He's like, I loved every minute of it. Good for you. So uh, I have no regret. I'm glad we enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully we'll be back there doing it uh a few more times, if not one more. So to, to that point, um, you know, you, you were fired from the Sacramento Kings under uh, circumstances that I think most people thought were ridiculous. And, you know, we don't need to go back into it. And then uh, after a successful bubble playoff run, the Nuggets trade for Aaron Gordon and the next season, and they look like you guys look like world beaters. I was going to pick you to make the finals that year. And then Jamal gets hurt. Right. Michael Porter gets hurt. And the, you have these two kind of abbreviated playoff runs as you're waiting for your team. You, again, are the son of a coaching lifer. You've already been fired by the Kings. You've been in Denver a long time. Um, Some ups, some downs. Those injuries, particularly during that time, did you ever start to wonder to yourself, like, man, I just, I wonder if we're, it's just not going to happen here. Is it, is it just, has too much gone wrong? You know, it's um, well, a few things. I agree with you. Right after we traded for Aaron Gordon, 
I think we won first eight games come, coming out of the All-Star break. And, and the most important game, Zach, was we beat the Clippers, and they were fully healthy at that time in L.A. And I know for me, that was a moment where I said, hey, we got a chance to, to do something special. Uh, we picked up a really valuable piece on Aaron Gordon. Uh, we're healthy with Jamal, Michael, Nicola, and we, we got a chance to be a really tough out. And then Jamal has the injury. And then, to your point, Jamal is out. We beat Portland. We get swept by Phoenix. The following year, we lose to Golden State 4-1. Uh, to one. All of us felt if we could ever get Jamal and Michael back and add the right pieces, because this year was not just about getting Jamal and Michael back healthy. It was also adding a guy like Octavius Caldwell-Pope, who had won a championship, one of the best two-way players in the entire NBA, in my opinion, signing a free agent in Bruce Brown, which I thought was so impactful for us this year. And will forever, by the way, be known as Brucey B now, thanks to to Parade Mike Malone. Brucey B. And then, you know, obviously, you know, Calvin Booth in the front office drafting Christian Brown. And so... Um, but it, it does go back to Jamal and Michael being fully healthy because we knew the last time that we were fully healthy, we made the Western Conference Finals. And if you look at the life and the arc of every great team and player in the NBA, you have to go through failure. You have to go through certain teams to reach the mountaintop. So we knew that if we got back to the Western Conference Finals, our guys would be better off for the first experience, a little bit more seasoned and ready and I think this year we showed that when we played the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals again. So health is so important. I mean, it, you have to be lucky to win a championship. You have to be talented. But things have to break your way. And the fact that we were able to be fully healthy uh, for 16 wins, 16 and four, that was a huge part of us being able to win the first one in 49 years. So all that time, you never lost the faith that if we get, if we got – the good fortune of being healthy, we got a real shot here. You never thought this is slipping away from us as a franchise. No, no, honestly, never, because I, I think through honest conversations with Tim Conley, who hired me eight years ago and w- I was with him for seven, uh, conversations with Josh Cronkey, conversations with Calvin Booth, and with our players, like, just got to stay the course. Everybody wants everything yesterday. The, the, the biggest pivotal point in my tenure here was game 82, my third year against Minnesota. If you want to talk like, when were you? I I felt that was the moment. If things weren't going to work here, that would be the perfect time for them to get rid of me. Even though we won 46 games, had a great season, doing with a lot of young players we drafted, you know, most owners after three years, they don't, hey, I don't care how many games you won. You didn't make the playoffs. And for, for Stan and Josh and Tim and then Calvin to have the, the patience and the ability to step back and say, you know what? We didn't reach it this year, but love the direction we're headed and more importantly, who we're, who we are headed there with. And uh, I, I am so grateful for the patience that our ownership and front office have shown over these eight years. So a couple of things, um, regular listeners of this podcast are already either laughing or rolling their eyes that you mentioned that game against the Clippers with Aaron Gordon because I have mentioned it 25 times on this podcast in the last three years as the game that I watched and said to myself, holy shit, they just beat this team up from start to finish. And it was just like, we're just better than you guys. We're just better. 
And that was a game like regular season games. They fly before your eyes. You forget them. And that game has always stuck with me. But I wanted to I was I was going to ask you about. So when you say game 82 against Minnesota, for those who don't remember what 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 coach means is 17, 18 season. The eighth playoff spot in the Western Conference comes down to a winner take all game between Denver and Minnesota in Minnesota that ends up going to overtime. And I remember that game, not just because of the stakes, but I, I, I take me back through this and what this was like within the team. If you can remember what, what impressed me. And when I knew that you had something special potentially with this group was not necessarily that game and how well you guys played on the road, you took it to overtime, almost won it. But if I recall, you had to go like 10 and one down the stretch or nine and one down the stretch just to get to that game. And the odds of any team who's a 46 win team, it's not, it's not like you guys are a 55 win team going nine and one down the stretch are, are not very good. And you guys dug down and did it. And that stretch always opened my eyes of like, there's a toughness here and a determination and a care factor here. That's a little bit unusual. What do you remember about getting to that game? Forget the game itself, getting to it. Well, a great memory and recall by you, Zach, because that I remember I think we lost the game in Toronto. And everybody, like you could you could feel like a collective, like that might have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Like, all right, maybe it's not gonna happen this year. And I remember like we stayed over and before we flew, we had a team meeting and that was the whole message. Like, we still have a chance to accomplish our goal. We are, even though we lost last night, we were not eliminated from the playoffs. We still have a real chance at doing this. But I remember that my message to the team was it can't be me just talking to you about it. We all collectively have to believe that. It's got to be something that we still feel we have a real chance. Because if not, we're just going to go through the motions. We'll get our ass kicked. And we're not going to go nine and one down the stretch to force the playing game before the playing game. That's right. And we had some amazing, I remember, I think it was a home game um, against Milwaukee. And we're down like 18 in the third quarter. And just the resolve, just the never quit mentality. And when you think about our team in the eight years that I've been here, that's not surprising, Zach, because go to the bubble, down 3 1 against Utah, come back. Down 3-1 against the Clippers, come back. And everybody says, well, nobody wanted to be in the bubble. Our guys were the only guys that wanted to be in the bubble. But the fact that we were down 3-1 and we didn't let go of that proverbial rope showed a lot about our character, as did that run prior to that game in Minnesota where we did lose in overtime. And the funniest part about that night, we get on the plane going home. Nicola comes back and sits down with me. And he looks at me and goes, Coach, I was cooking tonight, wasn't I? And he had carried us, um, and they had a veteran team. We had young players, and that was the takeaway from an organ organizational standpoint. Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, special young players who rise to the occasion and are not afraid. We can build with these two guys and add the right pieces around, and we've done that. And it's been it's been probably uh, one of the, one of the most enjoyable parts of this process and journey. So you mentioned that game is like if you're gonna fire a coach, like maybe maybe that maybe that's the moment. I had heard that right after that game, Josh Kroenke came into your office and essentially told you like, "Don't worry about that. Great season. Like we like what's going on here." Is that is that true? It is. No, I remember. You know, because as a coach, you never know. I mean, we lose the game in overtime. We could have gone to the playoffs. I mean, everybody wants to go to the playoffs. 
it means so much to your your franchise and your and your city. And uh, when I went out and saw him in the hallway, and he came over to me, and gave me a hug, and of course he was disappointed we lost. No, no one was walking around high fiving. Hey, we got really good young players. We were still stung by the loss. We were disappointed by the loss. But where I give Josh credit and Stan credit and Tim Conley at that point in time was, man, we're we're in a good place. We haven't mortgaged that future. We have all young players, draft well, develop our players from within, then add the right pieces. We're we are on the right path here. And I I think now, as we talk after winning a championship in 2023, I think a lot of NBA teams around the league are saying, you know what? That's a great blueprint, right? It's not going to happen overnight. Let's be patient. We're going to fail a few times in this process, but if we just keep trying to restart, 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 nothing ever takes hold. And and it's really hard to win at any level when you do that. So I'm hoping that we can be a blueprint for a lot of young teams, young coaches, and young GMs. Let let this build the right way, bring in the right kind of people, and you never know what's going to happen. And for us, Luckily, it worked out, and we're excited about that, but we're not satisfied. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything, pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung Smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes. Catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, Birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them. You name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Now, this is the moment where I remind you that we're on a fun podcast and we're having fun and there's a time to tell fun (laughs) stories. This is the time. I was told by multiple parties who will remain anonymous. Ask coach. You you mentioned the conference finals, getting back to the conference finals, the experience that you had before. Ask coach about the flight home from Los Angeles after you sweep the Lakers because that was one of the most fun flights I have ever been on in my entire NBA career. So I'm asking you, what happened on the flight back from Los Angeles? Well, I'm going to be honest. So in our plane, there's three parts of our plane. The player section up front, the coach, coaches in the middle, and kind of support staff, trainers, PR in the back. And I was so, like, exhausted from the, the series and everything. I was taking it all in. And there was a party in the front. You had a certain type of music up there. The players were going crazy. 
But the real party, Zach, was in the way back of the plane. And uh, we had some guys that, you know, uh, say they hadn't eaten a lot that night, but there, there was a lot of shots being done, a lot of music, and a lot of people getting sick. But um, I, I, I wasn't ready to celebrate. I mean, I'll be honest. I wasn't ready to – I didn't have a drink. I didn't have anything because getting to the NBA Finals wasn't my goal. Beating the Lakers wasn't our goal, you know. It was to win a championship. And as great as it was to to first time in Nuggets history to beat the Lakers in the playoffs, first time in Nuggets history to get out of the Western Conference and make, uh, achieve NBA final status, like, I wasn't ready to, like, exhale. I wasn't ready to come up for air. I wanted to keep grinding and have the mindset of, okay, even though we don't know who we're playing yet and we didn't know for quite a while, we still have work to do. And uh, But I was happy that everybody else kind of let their hair down, had fun, enjoyed the moment, because I think it's really important that you do that. You have to enjoy the journey. It can't be just all work, no play. You have to enjoy the moments. Um, and we had such a great group of guys that from staff, coaches, players, it was uh, it was one big party, and I'm glad we, everybody got home safely. <laughs> In terms of perspective and, and hammering in that perspective, you already mentioned being 1-1 with the Heat in the finals and you were very disappointed with how your team played in game two. I thought if I'm remembering right, particularly the first quarter of the game, you had more defensive breakdowns in that quarter than you probably had in like 10 games combined in the playoffs. And you called them out whenever you call them out publicly, you've already called them out privately, which I think is a credit to you. It's never a surprise to them what you're saying on the podium. But when you do call your team out, you do so in aggressive and harsh, not harsh, but just like direct terms. And you did it after that game. And, and I think some people in the media were a little taken aback. Like, man, that's a lot after after one loss. I mean, they're, they're, like, they're, they're doing okay. They're in the finals. And you've never been shy about you pick your spots, but you will you'll get on them in public and you'll tell it like it is. And I've always wanted to ask you, like, how do you know when and how often you, you can play that card? And and how did you how did you get a sense for this is a particular core that will let me play that card and understand that I'm right. And it's okay that I do this. Like, how do you, how do you manage that? Well, it's um, the first thought that comes to mind is uh, when I got the head coaching job in Sacramento, I, I think in 2013, coach Popovich sent me a, you know, he called me up and he said, listen, be yourself. You're Irish, you're fiery. You can be emotional. Be yourself. You always be yourself. But if you're going to be that, your players have to know that you love them. And you know, and look at Pop. Like, or he's he's his own coach. You know, but he's he's emotional. He's fiery. But his coach, his players, to this day, always know that he loves them and cares about them. And if I if I was doing that, Zach, if I was calling my players out, but I wasn't with them, or they didn't feel like I was with them, I, I, I probably wouldn't be here anymore. Um, how often can you do it? You can't do it. You, you can't fight City Hall every day. I, I can't go after my players and the media every day. Sometimes it's much better served behind closed doors and probably it's much better served one-on-one. If I have a problem with a player, let me address it with him one-on-one. Um, but I, I felt in that instance, we were in the NBA Finals and the amount of mistakes, mental mistakes that we made was just unacceptable. And I've had people like, talk to me about this and ask questions about this. Oh, you really went after your players. And I don't really see it that way. Like for me, you can't be afraid to coach a superstar. You can't be afraid to coach a great team or a great player. 
And I'm not, I'm not afraid to do that. I think our players respect the fact that I am who I am. I'm not trying to be something I'm not. Um, but if you're not doing your job, my job is to hold you accountable. If I'm not doing my job, I want somebody to hold me accountable. And I tell the players, listen, if you see something where I'm messing up, get on me. Like this is not, I don't live on a one-way street. I want it to work both ways and, and have that open and honest conversation and communication because that's where the real good stuff is and that real honest approach. And uh, and I think what kind of says a lot about our group is how we responded. I'm sure people are like, oh, coaches, he's going off on his guys. Our players responded like grown-ass men. We won game three and four in Miami. We came home and won game five in Denver in front of the, the greatest fans in the world. So um, I don't look at it as like I was smoke coming out of my ears and cursing at guys. I was just making a very honest, direct assessment of why we lost game two. And if we fixed those areas, which we did, we'd be fine. Are there – were there moments, have there been moments, and were there any in this playoff run where, where the players did what you said they should do, which is tell you, hey, hey, coach or coaching staff, like, you're missing this on the floor. We want to do this. We want to do X, Y, and Z. Is that, does that pushback from that direction happen? I wouldn't even call it pushback. Like, um, so our, our, our culture here in Denver, something that we, we built eight years ago and you work on every single day, is a work culture, a selfless culture, and the last part is a trust. And you know this. You've been in so many gyms that all across this uh, the the association, people have these beautiful words up on a wall that really don't mean a lot. They're hollow. So we try to live our words every day. And the reason I bring the word trust up is because, to your point, if we're getting ready to play Minnesota, Phoenix, Lakers, or Miami, it's not a dictatorship. It's not this is what we're doing. It is, hey, what do you guys think about this? Let's guard this. Or once you get into a series – you're always going to make an adjustment from game to game, half to half, quarter to quarter, out of a timeout, whatever it is. And the 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 feedback, the dialogue, trust in one another. So if our players say, hey, coach, how about we, we, we try to guard Devin Booker like this? Okay, let's try that. And if it doesn't work, we can try this. So that, that open and honest communication conversation, um, I think that's the best way to, to have a real team. We talk about family a lot, Zach, and our team in our locker room. And, uh, you know, families don't always get along, but they have to communicate. And I think that's what we, we did all year long. So our players have a voice in everything we do, and I'm glad they're willing to speak up. And that's where Jeff Green and DeAndre and Nicola and Jamal and Aaron, uh, KCP, all the guys that were willing to speak up and say, let's let's do this. You know, that, that's invaluable. Um. Back to 1-1 Miami. Brian Windhorst told this story already on the air um, on TV about the film session you had going into game three where I think the story was you had all 17 guys on the roster, the 15 players and the two-way guys, kind of narrate a clip of somebody else messing up in game two. or not mess. I, I hate the word messing up, just a miscommunication, a mistake, a schematic thing, an effort thing, whatever it was. Um is that is that what happened? Like, how do is that a thing? How did you come up with that? Did it go over well? Was there was there a funny moment um, during during it where you know DJ makes a joke about Jokic mess whatever it is? Like, what do you remember about that? So we we've done that in the past. You know, the, the one thing I I do not like whether I'm in a meeting with my coaches 
or in a team meeting or a film session with our players is I, I like participation. I don't, I don't want to be in a meeting and just me be the only one talking. So I'll get on our coaches about, hey, man, like, challenge me. Don't just say yes, yes, no. Somebody have the balls to challenge me and say, no, let's try this. And the same thing with the players. When we go through film and I'm watching clips, I've watched those clips probably 25 times each. I know already, but I want the players to talk. Getting people to communicate in an open, honest uh, uh, dialogue setting is hard to do. So we have 17 players, as you mentioned, 15 plus the two two-way players. And I cut it down to 17 clips. And I said, all right, one by one, let's go through these. You take me through the clip. We're going to watch it. We're going to rewind it back. And you tell me what was wrong, what was right with this uh, clip. And each player did a great job. I give our guys a lot of credit. They, there was no holding back. There was no, I'm going to hurt your feelings. It was honest, direct. And there were a few laughs. I can't really remember what they were, but it wasn't just like, you know, whistle while you work, going to the salt mine. It was, fellas, it's one-to-one. We're going to win game three. And we're going to win game three because we're going to learn from the mistakes that we made in game two. And the best way to learn from it is to talk about it, to watch it, to, to own it, and then let's move past it. And that's what we did. And, and the night prior, though, I do have to uh, give Jeff Green and his family a huge shout-out because we landed in Miami, and we hadn't watched the film yet, but Jeff invited the whole team over to his house. And that allowed everything, whether my comments after game two, guys being down on themselves after game two, we broke uh, broke bread as a family in Jeff's house, but it's, and it was uh, I think it was a really important part of us kind of winning a championship because we came together and we stayed together. We didn't fragment, we didn't splinter, and uh, and then we followed up that next morning with the film session, and I think it was uh, it was therapeutic for us. Um, just to, just a window into how locked in you guys ended up being in that series after Game Four. And the day of game five, I started hearing these stories about the Nuggets shoot-arounds before those, or walkthroughs, I guess, before before those games. And the story, as I heard it, was essentially you would have – I may not get this entirely right, so correct me if I don't. You would have um, a team of, like, deep bench guys, two-way guys, run Miami's some Miami set, but you wouldn't tell your first-team defense what it was going to be. And you would see how they would they would respond to it if they were to respond to it correctly. You would I don't know if the goal was to surprise them, whatever, but you wouldn't tell them. And before game four and before game five, they nailed it like first time through all the plays. And as as they're as they're defending it correctly and responding correctly, people are like starting to clap and cheer and holler, but not like a not like fun, but like like yeah, we got this. Like this is like we're nailing this. Like we're ready for this. And I had people tell me, like, I haven't seen our guys quite like that it pretty much ever. Do you remember the, those walkthroughs? Is that oh, about what no, happened? Yeah. No no doubt. And I think – so uh, I grab a great staff. David Allman, Ryan Saunders, Popeye Jones, Ryan Bowen, Charles Class, a lot of great coaches. And uh, so Ryan Saunders was kind of like our defensive guy this year. And I remember, like, at one point I said, we have to stop spoon-feeding our guys. All right? We, we can't say, okay – Let's cover this play. This is how we're guarding it. Tell them how we're guarding it. Come back, run it again, and you guys talk it out. But you're giving them the answers. That's This is the NBA Finals. We, we can't do that anymore. 
I want to get a scout team, Colin Gillespie, uh, Jack White, DeAndre Jordan, Ish Smith, whoever it was. I would huddle them up, hey, run this play. So now our players didn't know what Miami set we were running. They had to figure it out, communicate it, and if we got the coverages right and we guarded it well, we moved on to the next play. And, and you're right. There was a genuine excitement of everybody in the gym, not, not like JV both excitement. It was like we're in the NBA Finals and we're really locked in right now. Our guys know all their play calls. We know our coverages. We know our personnel coverages. And we're nailing all this. So now when we get into a game, we may not get their call. But you got to be able to react on the fly and defend at a high level. And the best way to do that is by communicating with each other, five guys working as one. And uh, and we did it. You know, and, and our guys deserve so much credit for being able to do that uh, throughout the series. When did you first know that Jokic could maybe be if not this, then like a first or second team All-NBA player? Because, you know, it's a long time ago now, but you get there, he's coming off the bench. He's even talking about how he kind of prefers to – he once told me in the first interview I did with him, he's like, I kind of like coming off the bench because sometimes we're in the bonus when I come in so I can get some cheap free throws. <laughs> like, I don't really I don't really need to start. I like this Nurkic guy. Let him start. But when did you first know that, like, this guy – this isn't just a gimmick. Like, this guy could be a top – Let's just say top 10 player in the NBA. Well, so my first, I, I came in, my first summer league was his first summer league. And not once during summer league did I say, we have something special. Put that out there. Because a lot of people like to have these revisionist history. Oh, I knew he was going to be coming out of summer league. He was out of shape, overweight. And um, you could tell he was skilled. Great guy. Loved his personality. But there was a game his rookie season against San Antonio in San Antonio with Tim Duncan. And Nicole's line was something of like 26 points, 13 rebounds, eight or nine assists. And I'm like, he, he just did it against one of the best players that ever played the game on the road as a young kid. And he impacted the game across the board. But what really stood out to me when, during that rookie season, his unselfishness and his IQ and his ability to make everyone around him better. You said it a few times, like, I'm a coach's son. My father taught me years ago what defines greatness is the great players can make everyone around them better. And Nicola did that. So that that first kind of uh, that game in that year one as a rookie against San Antonio and Tim Duncan is really kind of for me when the light bulb went off. And then the, the second, and, and I think there's a, they call it Yokemus, I think, in Denver. Yep, I was going to ask you about Yokemus. And I, I didn't even know there was a word for it. But I know for me, when I think about this date, it's probably one of the most important points in Denver Nugget history. I, I know, for, at least in my eight years, we had just come back from a uh, disappointing road trip. Last game was in Dallas. We got our ass kicked. And Nicola was a first-team all-rookie as a, as a rookie player in the NBA. Now we're in year two. And I tried to start he and Yusuf Nurkic together to start the year Nicola came to see me. He's like, Coach, look, please let me come off the bench. This isn't working. And then after that game in Dallas, I remember I was driving home and just like talking to myself. I said, he was a center, first team all rookie as a center, and I'm playing him at the four. What am I doing? And from that point in time, the whole franchise changed. We started him as a center. He became the focal point of everything we did. And everybody realized that this guy is a special player. 
We can play through him in the high post, the elbow, the low post, pick and roll. And him and Jamal Murray became the number one pick and roll combo in the league with Nikola Jokic handling and Jamal Murray setting the screen. And now we opened up the the just the, the enormous talent and tool set that Nikola has. But but that that day, Yokemis, as everybody in Denver calls it, was really an important point in changing the trajectory of our team. What's the conversation like with Jokic it, before that game where he's going to start at center? Is there even a conversation? Is it in your office? Is it is it a quick conversation? What's his response to it? Like this is this is your spot now. Like it or not, you're starting. Yeah, I mean, I, it's so long ago. I can't remember all the details, but we definitely did meet. I've always tried to meet with Nicola off season, go to Serbia during the season, grab him one on one and um, challenge him, help him get better, all those things. And I, it was just something to the effect of, listen, Nicola, almost like apologizing. Like, you were first team or rookie <laughs> at the center. Now, this year we've been trying to do some different things, and I think it was, it was right to try those things, but it wasn't working out. It wasn't – and I said, listen, you're going to go back to playing your natural position. We're going to play through you. Play your game, be unselfish, make everybody around you better – and let's just see where, where this goes. And um, we, we've gone the right way. So I'm glad that we made that decision. He was fully on board with it. And, I mean, really, from that point in time, Zach, it was just his game and our team just kind of took off. And um, we had the number, probably the last 60 years now, probably the number top four offense in the NBA every year. And Nicole is a huge part of that. I suspect one of the reasons you felt obligated to try that it was the right thing to do to try to play him at the four, as you as you described it, was because you knew you would risk losing Nurkic, or losing is a strong word, but that obviously is a prideful, good player. He would not be psyched about coming off the bench. So what was that conversation like on the other end of that decision? Yeah, well, go back to the offseason from, you know, my first year going into year two. Uh, Nicola had a great season. Nurk was coming back from injuries. And, you know, and speaking with, Tim Connolly, who was the GM president at the time, and Arturis Konashovis, who's now in Chicago. He was, you know, Tim's assistant GM. And it was one where, hey, man, like, we we have two really good special players. You know, I know the league is going smaller, but we may be able to, because of their skill set, uh, play them together and play big ball. And like I said, I, I was fully on board with, you know, giving it a go and trying it. Um, you know, by the time we got to December, it wasn't kind of that. And that was really hard for Nerd. I mean, and the, the best part of this story was Nicola stays here and, and becomes a two-time MVP and a world champion. And Nurk goes to Portland and is impactful, you know, teaming up with CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard and helping them become a playoff team. So, like, everybody was happy in the end, but I just don't think Yusuf Nurkic and Nikola Jokic could have coexisted in Denver for, for longer than they did. And that's always hard, but I think everybody in the in the end, Zach, benefited. And you know, Nurk has his position there in Portland, and obviously Nicole's done what what he's done here in Denver. In the fall of 2017, I went to Denver because I was really intrigued by your team. I loved Jokic then. You had signed Paul Millsap in the offseason, and that's the year you get to game 82 and their expectations. It was early in the season, and you guys were kind of trying to figure out your spacing with Paul at the four and how to figure and how to get everybody on the same page. And I'm there for a few days, three or four games and halfway through the trip, I start hearing the story like, man, have you heard that coach almost kicked Nicola out of practice the other day? 
I'm like, <laughs> no, I haven't heard that. And then I interviewed you about it. I interviewed him about it. And the story was something like he was lazy getting back in transition and you called him out. And he said, well, coach, coach, like it's not my fault. So-and-so turned the ball over. Like you should be yelling at him. And you essentially told him, Hey man, I don't want to hear about that. If you don't want to play, get the hell out of the gym. And then you told me afterwards, like he he's young and we're putting an unfair amount of responsibility on him, but he does have to realize that people are going to look to him. Now, Jamal Murray's going to look to him. Gary Harris is going to look to him. And if he plays with a certain effort level or attitude, good or bad, our team is going to take cues from him. So I'm wondering if all these years later, A, you remember that practice, and B, whether it was Nicole or anybody else, is that just like a not uncommon thing in NBA practices? Like, was that not that you're kicking people out left and right, but is it, are we, blow, am I blowing that up into more than it is? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I don't, I don't know how common it is for other teams. And like, it's, it's not something that happens a lot in our practices where I'm kicking people out. Um, I do remember Nicola's rookie year. We were, we had shoot around. We're playing golden state that night. And, um, it was a horrible shoot around and I kicked him out. I said, everybody get, get the hell out of here. You guys are full of shit. You talk about winning, but you don't want to have attention to detail, blah, blah, blah. So I kicked him out and Nicola was a rookie. He had no idea. So he says to Mike Miller, he goes, Mike, coach, where do we go? Coach just kicked us out. What do we do now? And Mike, being the veteran who he was, it's all right. Go home. Come back later on for the game. And we won that night. So it's kind of funny how sometimes you do those things yep. as a source of motivation. Um, and there have been probably, you know, a handful of times in, in my eight years with Nicola where I've gotten on him. And, you know, he uh, he always responds well to it. And I remember uh, that instance you're talking about in practice. Um, but it's really important for me as a head coach, especially now, whether it's Nicola, whether it's Jamal, Aaron, whoever, for Christian Brown, for Peyton Watson, for our young players, if I'm going to get on them, they also got to know I'm going to get on our best players. And we had a film session this year after uh, we played down in New Orleans, man, and they Jose Alvarado dropped 38 on us. Oh, I remember that game. That's right. Uh, they, I mean, it was embarrassing. I mean, Herbert Jones, uh, those, they were just dunking on us. Trey Murphy, it was just like, we got home. And again, I think I had maybe like 10 clips. And like three of them were Nicole, three were Jamal. And not just to, to go at those guys, but to make sure the other guys know, okay, listen, man, like if Nicole's not doing his job, coach isn't scared to call him out. If Jamal's not doing his job, coaches are scared to call him out. I'm not just going to go after Christian. You're a rookie. What the hell are you doing? And the best thing about it, Zach, and what I love about those guys is that both Jamal and Nicole say, coach, man, like, coach us. Don't coach around us. Coach us. And they know if I'm showing clips, yes, it's to hold you accountable. But it's also to send a message to our group. Like, listen, we're all in this together. And I'm going to hold everybody to a certain standard, not just one guy and not the other guy. It's got to be everybody. And our players fully understand that. And I think they they welcome it because it's it's that's how you win. That's how you get better. On Jamal, I've always I've written and said many times, I, I think his contribution to their two man game, him and Nicola's, I think his contribution to it, the artistry he brings to it is underrated because Nicola is so good. A lot of the attention goes to him. A couple of people told me that I had forgotten about this game from this past season. And a couple of people told me to ask you about it. You go to Portland, you're 14 and 10. 
14 and 10. Like, it's hard to believe that the Nuggets were 14 and 10. You're 14 and 10. Dame hits a three, I think, to put the Blazers ahead with eight, 8.8 seconds left. You guys call a timeout. You draw up a play that I believe is for Jokic. The ball gets entered to Jokic. He fumbles the ball. He ends up pitching it back out to Jamal. Jamal hits a fading left corner three with like 0.8 seconds left to win the game. And a couple people told me if there was a turning point in our season, not that we needed a turning point, but if there was a pivot point, because it was Jamal, because he had come back from this this injury and it had been a long road for him, that's a moment where we feel like we kind of took off as a team. And sure enough, you go from 14 and 10 to 33 and 13 after that game. And sure, there's not a direct cause and effect there, but do you remember that game and that shot and like the aftermath of that moment for Jamal? Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. That that was definitely was a turning point. We were kind of hovering around 14 and 10, win a couple, lose a couple, not real consistent. Um, but I, I I often reference that game as a turning point for two reasons. One, Jamal Murray, the player, the individual, uh, missing a year and a half with the ACL injury, a lot of hard work to get back. But even just because you're back playing this year doesn't mean that you're fully confident in my abilities. You still know there's work to be done ahead of you to get back to the the elite level you know you're capable of getting to. And so for Jamal, and one thing I love about Jamal Murray, one, one of the most mentally tough and physically tough players I've ever been around. And this guy, he, he might miss 10 in a row, Zach. He hits one, that's all he needs. He just see one go in. And to your point, that game was crazy. I remember people tweeting after that game, that might have been one of the best games of the year because in the fourth quarter, there were like 15 lead changes, back, forth, back, forth. And Jeremy Grant gets switched on to Jamal in between his legs, step back, three, dagger. And I was just so happy for Jamal and the journey and the comeback and the doubt and the tough days and the dark days to have that moment of, hey, man, you know what? I can still do this. And the second part was for our team, okay? It wasn't just about beating Portland, but that win from that point in time, I believe um, we were maybe seventh or eighth in defense the rest of the way. So there's a direct correlation between the turnaround, winning in Portland, that date, because all year long, I would go into my computer, NBA.com stats, that date through the end, whatever part of the season we were, and we were a top seven, eight defense. And you look at the NBA Finals, I thought our defense was amazing. And some people will say, well, Miami Heat, they weren't the greatest offensive team. We were in the Finals, man. I don't care. We held that team to 93, 94, 95 points. And our guys fully locked in and realized that if we're going to do anything special this year, we better start defending somebody because we can't give up 38 points to Jose Alvarado and expect to win a game. So that's why that game and that date was so important because I feel, I don't know if Jamal would agree with this or admit it, but I feel that gave him just that much more, okay, I got this, man. And what he did in the playoffs, I mean, Jamal Murray in the playoffs, some guys shy away from that. Jamal Murray, and again, Nicole is a great player, but Jamal Murray in the playoffs, man, is a this otherworldly. He's incredible, never afraid of the moment, puts the team on his back, and just uh, it's so much fun to watch. And when you think about the journey, it's even that much more rewarding. I said this during the finals at some point. 
Um, he's making the all-star team next year. I don't care if he gets off to his typical like first month shooting slump or whatever. The coaches are going to put him on the all-star all-star team because they now we've seen it all the way through 16 wins. He's going to make the all-star team. Last question. I give you the floor. Is there a, a story that you want to tell about this season or your career, a, a person within the organization that we didn't talk about that you want to shout out with player, coach, staff? Is there anything you want to finish on? Because you're, you guys won the championship. I give you the floor. What do you want to say? Wow. I, well, I appreciate that. Um, wasn't prepared, but I, I guess the same person, same position. Um, I have to give Tim Connolly so much thanks. You know what I mean? Like when I got fired in Sacramento, I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, had I done enough in a year and a half in Sacramento to show I could coach in this league? Uh, had I shown that I could change a culture and establish a style of play? Uh, had, did I show enough in relating to a player like DeMarcus Cousins, who we had a great relationship? And, you know, for Tim Connolly to to bring me to Josh Cronkin and say, this is our guy. All right. The, the last coach didn't work out for whatever reason. But Michael Malone, he's going to be the guy that can, can get us going in the right direction. So, obviously, I think it's really important, and Tim knows this, but to give Tim Connolly a, a lot of love and respect because here I am, a world champion head coach at Denver Nuggets, and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my relationship with Tim. So, and then I segued that into Calvin Booth. You know, it was, it was really important for me when Tim left to go to Minnesota that Calvin was the guy that took over because I knew Calvin. Calvin knew me. We knew our team. I didn't think we needed to go outside and get somebody from wherever. Let, let's keep that continuity and our family together. And, and I'm so thankful that Josh and Stan saw that and felt that. And I think Calvin Booth, obviously, what a great first year as a GM in the NBA. Yeah, not bad. You know, not bad. He has a very good draft, really good free agency. We won a championship. But I, I think for me, I remember hearing when I got in the league over 20-something years ago, Zach, people would say, well, the relationship between a head coach and a GM is always going to be at some point adversarial. And and I and I, I didn't – I understood it, but I, I hoped it wasn't true. And I can say in my eight years here, my relationship with Tim Conley and Calvin Booth has never been adversarial. Do we challenge each other? Do we not always agree? Of course we don't. Well, we shouldn't. You know, what, the things we always talk about are communicating – collaborating and challenging each other. And if you do those things often enough, you'll be aligned as you move forward. So uh, I just, I think Tim and Calvin are so instrumental in me being where I am. And uh, obviously my family, my wife, my two daughters, my mother and father, and all the support I've gotten from them over the years. Uh, I'm really fortunate, man. I'm blessed. I'm fortunate. I look I'll leave you with this, Zach. And I don't know how many head coaches in the NBA or in professional sports can say this. I look forward to going to work every day. I look forward to going to work every day with the people I work with. And I, I, I know for a fact that a lot of people don't feel that way. So I don't take it for granted. I've been around this game for a long time. And uh, I'm looking forward to learning, improving, getting better, and trying to, to uh, defend what we just uh, what we just won a few months ago. I was going to say you're you're looking forward to making another run at it because you you got that same starting five that blitz the league. You got to make some changes in the bench rotation, but that's the life of a coach. Michael Malone, you've given us too much of your time. Go back to enjoying your offseason. You've earned it, and uh, I, I sincerely mean it, man. People people who give their lives to this game, they have ups and downs. 
it's it's gratifying and that and it goes not just for you you're you're kind of the front facing public figure of the organization but it's a lot of different people it's gratifying to watch them get to to get to live the thing they've dreamed about especially you know the again the son the the uh, coaching lifer who's the son of a coach who just by the way won the Tex Winter Lifetime Achievement Award your dad did um at Summer League which is an awesome honor in and of itself so it's gratifying to see Congratulations on your success. I'm sure I will see you around the block. But for now, I hope you get some downtime with the family and uh, gear up because 29 teams are coming at you, coach. Yes, they are. Zach, I really appreciate you having me on, man. All the best to you and your family. And I look forward to staying in touch. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay, full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. And with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. All right. It's fitting that we transition from Michael Malone, the head coach of the championship-winning Denver Nuggets, to an L.A. Clippers segment. These teams kind of, they haven't necessarily been tied together, but they've intersected at a bunch of interesting moments. Coach Malone talked about a couple of those moments. Uh, starting in the bubble when the Clippers, who much ballyhooed in their first year with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, I picked them to win the title. They're <laughs> up 3-1. I remember doing a segment on what was then the jump where the question was, is this series over? And all of us <laughs> said, it's over. The Clippers are going to the conference finals. I had a big Lakers-Clippers story, conference finals themed, ready to go. That's in the trash can of NBA history. And since then... Uh, both teams suffered injuries. One team got through their injuries and fulfilled its promise. The other team has not. And that team is the Clippers and Om Young Masuk. It feels like, I don't know if it's because they haven't really done much in the off season. They let Eric Gordon go. They drafted Kobe Brown to look very good in summer league. They signed KJ Martin or acquired KJ Martin. I thought that was a really good move by them. Yeah. And other teams have done all kinds of exciting stuff. To me, the Clippers are like the pot that's boiling over here, and it could boil over at any moment. Like, I'm not going to say Armageddon is here, but Kawhi Leonard's eligible for an extension now. Crickets, as far as I've heard. You, you, mm -hmm. you'll cover you cover the team. Same. I'll ask you in a second. Yep. Paul George eligible in September. Other Western Conference powers, either betting on their own continuity or or loading up with stars or on the bench, Chris Paul and the Clippers just kind of like, we got a new arena coming. 
has history has history passed this team by him? Like what why why what should I mean I just don't even you have the tie loose stuff. It, it, I'm as someone who was bullish on the Clippers as soon as they put this team together, picked them to make the finals last year. It just feels like the, the West may have passed them by a little bit. So this might be the year that nobody picks the Clippers and watch them actually make their run. Uh look, I mean, Michael Malone could probably tell you this, and he's a classic example. And I would think that the 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 Clippers are looking at the Nuggets and saying, look what happened when they all got healthy. Jamal Murray gets healthy. Michael Porter Jr. gets healthy. They stuck together. They had the continuity and they won. The one thing that the Clippers are hanging their hat on is that, look, when we have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George healthy, we're good. We know what we can do. I mean, we know what we can do with just one guy, with Kawhi Leonard. I mean, it's it's very possible. And I remember we're talking to Denver Nuggets people in the second round when they faced the Phoenix Suns that we're, they were wondering had Kawhi Leonard stayed healthy in that first round, they might have been facing the Clippers instead of the Suns. That's how good Kawhi was. This is a pivotal summer for them, Zach. I mean, you're right. There are so many things that could go wrong for the Clippers. What happens if the Clippers start to negotiate an extension, which, I, by the way, I hear – is quite kind of quiet right now. There's no rush on an extension for Kawhi Leonard. Then Paul George will be eligible in September. Um, that you know, clearly the Clippers are going to not want to, if they have their way, have it be an extension that's reasonable for them. Just because while they love their two stars, their two stars have just not been available due to injuries, and there's no arguing that fact. Um, and because of the new CBA and how just incredibly punishing it can be on teams that pay the tax like the Clippers. They really have to watch it. Look, I, I think with this James Harden thing, for example, it's real interesting, Zach. They're sitting there and they're wondering, okay, what exactly are the Sixers going to do? Are the Sixers actually going to trade James Harden or not? I think they might have some doubts about that, but they'll be ready to pounce if so. But even if they try to make a trade for James Harden, I, everything I've heard, they don't want to part with Terrence Mann. And I think part of the thing also, yeah, they have a lot of expiring contracts, perhaps the Norm Powell, perhaps the Vita Zubats. Um, but Terrence Mann is somebody that can bridge the gap for them when they go to their new arena. I think they like a homegrown prospect who seems to get better every year. He is a big part of their plans. Um, they are planning with him ahead. So I'm not going to say never say never. If it comes down to, hey, James Harden wants to come to Clippers and this is going to cost you Terrence Mann. Well, we'll see what the Clippers are going to do because I do think the window on Paul George and Kawhi Leonard in that era to win a championship, we are <laughs> we might be a quarter open left, right? I don't know. I mean, I feel like they are approaching that before they move to the new arena. Those guys are not getting any younger, and certainly we've seen what they what's been health wise. So at some point, the Clippers are going to have to decide what do we want to do. Do we want to go for the championship now and try to win it? And seeing that maybe the end of the West is stacked, but also. We still have a chance. There's no dynasty out there in the West that we have to deal with. The Nuggets are great, but there's a lot of parity out there. Yeah, I don't think the Clippers. I don't think the Clippers view this as dire or as as dire as we're framing it. I think they look at the West and say, "Oh, Phoenix. I mean, you know, we gave them some issues for for a hot second without Kawhi and Paul George. Like we played them tough." They have depth issues still. Denver lost its, you know, sixth and eighth guys or whatever you want to say. Bruce Brown and Jeff Green were. Lakers, well, they got health problems too. Warriors, they got health problems, age problems, depth problems. You know, Memphis, we think they're going to be ready. Kings, we think they're going to be ready. And on and on. 
But I look at the Clippers and, you know, yeah, Kawhi looked awesome. Kawhi looked like Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi looked like apex Kawhi Leonard for two games in the playoffs. Two games. Now, it also looked great for the 30, 35 regular season games before that. But 41 minutes in game one, 39 minutes in game two, over. And Paul George obviously missed the entire playoffs. And not only that, you know, the vaunted Clippers death, vaunt, depth, vaunted, vaunted by me too. Yeah. Robert Covington, fringe player. Marcus Morris, fringe player by the end of last season. Luke Kennard, gone for Eric Gordon. Eric Gordon, gone. Like some of the depth and lineup flexibility, oh my God, they can play big and small and five wings and all that has gone by the wayside. And that makes me just not just as nervous as the two stars never being available, but that makes me nervous too from a Clippers perspective. And it just, you know, you mentioned it and I've said this for two months, including I think with you, two, three months, maybe longer. I just don't see a world where the Clippers give these guys four-year, five-year, whatever it is, max extensions, fully guaranteed. It's not going to happen. I I don't think it's going to happen. I just don't think it can happen. I don't know how you can do that, given that they've played less than half the games together for the last whatever seasons, four seasons. And, you know, I don't know how that goes over with these guys, if if that's what it comes to. And you, you're saying nothing so far on Kawhi. Kawhi has not been a guy who takes extensions to, to, to begin with. He likes to play it out. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, if you're a Kawhi Leonard or Paul George and you've been used to max players always getting the max extension, full maximum extension, and now you're looking at, I mean, it, it comes down to do you understand and believe what the new maybe lay of the land is going to be? Because I think a lot of teams are have to beware. They have to be careful with the contracts they're handing out. Um, and so it depends. To me, I think the Clippers are hoping probably Kawhi Leonard really wants to stay home in Los Angeles. Paul George really wants to stay home in Los Angeles. They both understand, hey, we haven't always been available um, due to injuries and we've had some bad luck. But we can do this and we want to do this and we're moving into a new arena and all of those things. And look, Steve Ballmer is willing to pay and we have a great coach in Ty Lue. I think those are all those things that they're going to have to try and convince those guys to say, hey, if you take, you know, I don't know. I mean, uh, not the four year max extension, two plus one. I don't know what it may be, um, you know, and stay here and try to win a championship. And we're going to keep trying to put all the right pieces around. I like the moves they made, Zach, this summer. I like them bringing back Russ. Okay. We saw what Russ I didn't did. Mention I Russ. Was they a good, good call. Russ, Russ was really good for them. I like Plumlee as the backup center. He was great. I think his passing is extremely underrated for what they do. Now, the other thing, too, is if they end up trading Ivica Zubac, whose name has been out there, Plumlee's the starter. You know what I mean? And so he's going to be valuable for them. And then I, I really love the Kenyon Jr. move. Like, look, I covered Kenyon Sr., so I'm a little biased. I was there during the New Jersey Nets days. I covered him. I know this kid is going to bring the fire. He's going to bring the energy, the athleticism, the the punishing dunks. They need all of that, and they need availability. That's why Russ is so big for them. They need availability in case their stars are not going to be available. So um, the Eric Gordon thing hurts because they had to get rid of him because basically they saved like over $100 million in luxury tax. So you know, they're going to have to find some more outside shooting. They're going to have to hope Terrence Mann adds more to that outside jumper. And listen, for all we say about Terrence Mann, and I think he's a very promising kid for them, Tyloo has to play Terrence Mann too. Tyloo has to want to play him more. And I think that's something that, you know, Clipper fans have been frustrated about. But the one thing you do know about Terrence Mann, his role changes all the time. He takes it and he always tries to work on his game. 
You mentioned Ty Lue. It's another thing that didn't happen this offseason. No Ty Lue extension. Um, he has not been shy expressing his frustration with the state of availability there. He was on all the smoke. Um, <laughs> this I think it was during Summer League. Said he's talked to Paul George and Kawhi Leonard about taking the regular season more seriously. It's awesome. It's going to be year five now. Yeah. Well, I, he's echoing he's echoing what Lawrence Frank said right at the end of the season, basically saying, "Look at the Denver Nuggets. They were the number one seed all season long. They took the regular season seriously. I would say, argue, argue I would argue until the end of the 60, regular first season, sixty five games. Yeah, first when whatever games. happened, some weird things happened with them. I I personally think Jokic got a little tired of the MVP talk. I think it impacted that team. Whatever. Uh, but I, I think that the he they want the Clippers to say, "Look, seeding matters here. We are always fighting." To, to get out of the bubble, I mean, to get out of the, the play-in and basically say, like, stop being on the bubble with the eighth seed or whatever it is, seventh seed. Start moving up. Start playing for home court advantage. It matters when it comes to seeding. Let's not worry going into the last two weeks of the season where, where, where we're going to be come playoff time. Let's take it seriously, and then maybe we can rest guys or ramp them up, whatever it may be. Um, and so I, I think you'll see that. I mean, look, Kawhi Leonard, we have to remember, he 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 uh, had a cleanup surgery on his knee on the what meniscus. Is a, what is a what is a cleanup? So it's like a mis- a, it's like clean a scope, up a meniscus. I think. Okay. Yeah, I I wish I were a doctor. My parents, my Asian parents, wish I was a doctor. Zach, fortunately, I just I'm feel not. Like cleanup is such a carefully <laughs> a carefully chosen phrase to make. Oh yeah, it, it makes seem it sound like, like it's makes it sound yeah. like it's minor. But look, I mean, anytime you get cut open, it's never minor, right? So, but this is the same knee that he had the ACL tear. So. I wouldn't be surprised if we see Kawhi Leonard. They bring Kawhi Leonard slowly along camp. Now, Lawrence Frank did tell us, I asked him point blank after the draft, is he going to be ready to go in camp? And he said, absolutely, 100%. But to me, that also doesn't mean he's going to be a full participant in camp. But we'll see. I mean, like Kawhi Leonard, you know, he know he's going to be in shape. It's just a matter of whether or not they're going to take it slowly with his knee and be very careful because the bottom of the line is they're going to want their stars available. But I like that Ty Lue's echoing it. Ty Lue, though extremely frustrated last season, Zach. I mean, there were there were rumblings around the league. People were saying this, and I told Ty this many times. There are other coaches around the league asking me, man, I hear Ty Lue is so frustrated that he'd be ready to walk away. Now, I don't think Ty Lue would walk away from the money, and, and Ty said that, but he did have a lot of things going on off the court as well. He had a lot of family members pass away that he had to deal with, things like that, and he never gave up on the team. He was always there for them. This, and and then, you know, he would be drawing up game plans, Zach, and then find out the last minute, this guy's out or this guy's out. And he would have to scratch everything. And I think that became very frustrating for him. I think he really, really wants to see his team healthy together and what he can do with his two stars for a full season until we see it. Uh, you know, I guess I'll, I'll believe it when we see it, I guess. Well, again, I will say there has been no Ty Lue extension. Um I can tell you for sure that Ty Lu and his representation saw the contracts that were handed out to coaches uh, this offseason, most notably the Monty Williams mega deal in Detroit, and are like, huh, okay, interesting. Um, you mentioned Russ. I, Russ was sensational for the Clippers. I was totally wrong. I I, I said that I would stay 10,000 feet away. I just thought he was a bad fit. Uh, I, I just... I, I I didn't like the fit alongside both Paul and Kawhi in a traditional. So I just I just didn't like the fit. Um, now 
part of the reason he was great is that there are just so seldom Paul and Kawhi playing together that, like you said, you need someone who's just there to soak up possessions and he can still do that. And like Terrence Mann and like Kenyon Martin Jr. should be able to do, he gets this slow ass team running fast, playing basketball, just like strap a freaking jetpack to him and let's go. Let's not walk it up the court every freaking time. Although when you just mentioned those three and if, if they are running together, all of a sudden I'm wondering, Where's the shooting going to come from? Well, they won't. I mean, you can't play all those guys yeah. together all the time. But um, but I, I still, if you're asking me, like, is Russ the answer to the point guard question for this team? I still think the answer is no. And we've seen the Clippers chase Chris Paul. And I think they got further down that road than maybe has been reported. They got real far down the Malcolm Brogdon road and then decided to veer right off the road and drive into a lake. And... <laughs> You know, that's where the Harden thing is interesting. You mentioned them not being willing to part or or projecting at least that they may not be willing to part with Terrence Mann in a Harden deal. I, I've heard that too. If that's the case, then I just frankly don't know if that there's a James Harden. I think there's a James Harden deal that could be made between the Sixers and the Clippers. If If that remains the case with Terrence Mann, then I just don't think that there is. And... I do think one way or another, this team needs a shakeup of ball handling, playmaking to really challenge again to win the West. And if it's not hard, and maybe the bet is going to be that something else shakes loose between now and December, January, February. But if they're if they're really on no, just a no on man, then I just don't. I mean, there may not be a deal anyway that the Sixers would make the way that Daryl Morey is talking about. We either need a star mm-hmm. or stuff that we can translate into a star. And if that's to, to be taken literally, let's just leave man out of it. If if the deal is Powell plus Covington plus 2028 first plus 2030 first, like I'm not sure I can translate that More into senior. a star. No, it, And they do have those two picks to trade now, the Clippers, after being in pick hell for so yeah. long because of the Thunder. So, so you're... That's what you're hearing on Harden. Like, is it's it's if that if that's true, then there's just no James Harden deal for them. I mean, it just sounds like right now it's it's it sounds like it's at a standstill. I mean, I I think like the Clippers are waiting to see are are the Sixers going to trade him? Are they serious about it? Uh, you know, obviously they're they're monitoring the Damian Lillard situation, but obviously on that side, Damian Lillard's people have made it very clear that they want Miami. Um, you know. And I think Dame would be great there. They just don't Dame, have well. I mean, that you got to get, get like four teams in that deal to get at the package that I just read you. Portland is going to just they, they're not even waking up to take that phone call. Yeah. Look, and and I, I'll say this. I still have my doubts about even if they were to get Harden, how this would work. Yes, I guess I get it. Harden's the assist guy and he and he should seamlessly fit in with Kawhi and Paul. But the thing is, like. I've seen Harden like and when he's in this honeymoon period, he's great. He's working his ass off. He's playing great. But if Harden starts to see like Paul George ain't available all the time, he's hurt. Kawhi Leonard isn't available all the time. These guys aren't playing. You could easily see Harden just being like, well, why am I busting my ass? Right. Like, I feel like there have been times that that sentiment has seeped into the Clippers locker room with other players. So it's like, you know. You wonder how that would go. And, of course, when things go bad with James or James gets something in his head, things go bad. <laughs> I mean, I was with the Nets, and I saw it happen from the start of training camp in San Diego where all of a sudden Kyrie is not getting the vaccine. 
it went from everybody was like, oh, you know, Sean Marks, we're going to extend these two guys, Kyrie Irving and James Harden, to all of a sudden they're not signing the extension and all of a sudden James is unhappy. So, like, you know, we we, we obviously have seen that turn very bad very quick. So I still wonder what the chemistry would be like with James Harden in that locker room. And I'm not saying James is a cancer or anything like that. I'm just saying James might survey the surroundings and eventually he might not like it, even though he would be home in Los Angeles. And in order to get James, Zach, you would have to give up a lot of the depth that the Clippers have and a lot of these young pieces. So now all of a sudden you're top heavy with guys that aren't always available. Yeah, I've done the James Harden fit thing with the Clippers in prior episodes. I, I do think they need playmaking. I do think he makes some schematic sense with the two other stars. I worry about pace and making a slow team even slower. I worry exactly what you said about the honeymoon period of every time James seems to play with another star, he talks about how much he's sacrificing and he's willing to sacrifice. And he gets to the end of the year. He's like, I didn't like sacrificing that much. I kind of want to play the way I want to play, which is not going to be the way Kawhi wants to play or Paul wants to play. And you know, look, I mean, you talk to teams around the league, and I'm not talking about the Clippers specifically, but you talk to the teams around the league, and they're like, this dude's on a $35 million expiring contract. So, like, we either have him for a year or we have to pay his next contract. And we've all seen the movie of Game 6, Game 7 comes around, James doesn't show up, blames everybody else, and asks out, like, why am I... So then he's just going to leave after a year, or I'm not going to want to pay him after a year because that's how the year's going to end. I'm, I'm going to trade you awesome stuff for that. And, Nobody's and Zach, doing it. If that scenario plays out like you just said, and they're going to walk into Balmer's new palace, and all of a sudden they don't have Terrence Mann and say Norm Powell's gone and Ivica Zubats, and now you're walking in without James Harden if he decides whatever, it goes bad, and then Kawhi Leonard you know, a year older and Paul George a year older, uh, that's, <laughs> that's why I think the Clippers are at a crossroads here, Zach. That's why I think, like, that, that, as much as the Terrence Mann thing, like, you're like, oh, well, just give up Terrence Mann to get James Harden, right? But I kind of understand what they're thinking, that they at least want some young guys with promise and potential to go into that new building. Well, and they because they gave up so much to get these guys. Uh, we know what they gave up, Shea and, and a million picks. They've been up, up and down. I mean, it's hard to acquire good young talent when you're either not drafting or you're drafting between 25th and 30th. Um, the Jerome Robinson pick is one that I don't think Definitely. a lot of people talks about that talk about that really haunts them, as does the Keon Johnson for Quentin Grimes trade that they made on draft night. But then they spin, they just find a way because Bomber is willing to take on more money. They spin Keon Johnson plus Bledsoe plus Winslow into Covington and Powell, which is the model of deal they've made a million times. They got Hartenstein off the scrap heap. That was a mm -hmm. great sign. And they got Zubots from Mike Muscala, which is one of the all time like a little fringe heists in recent NBA history. So it's a, I'm even a mere coffee on a two way. It's like a good deal. This Kobe Brown kid looks good. Boston. Got, and got Boston. Yeah. Boston and Preston haven't given him much yet. So it's, it's been a little hit or miss, but like hit or miss on in the big picture, this front office has largely done its job going back to how they set themselves up with a series of trades to get Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Did they just haven't succeeded enough? And it's what made look the bubble was the bubble, and some teams, you know, Mike Michael Malone said, "Oh, nobody wanted to be in the bubble." But what were the only ones who want to be in the bubble? We're supposed to apologize for that. The Clippers, I think, were one of the teams that they certainly had some bubble uh, turmoil. 
throwing up, not throwing away that season. I mean, the world kind of threw away or put that season in disarray. It's just every season is precious and having that one turn all the way sideways, the way it did hurts. And just every year that goes by, you go back to that 2021 season that ends with the Bucks winning the title. They beat Dallas in the first round. Kawhi has one of the great games of his career, scoring 45 points on 18 of 25 shooting to save their season in game six, then 28 points on 10 of 15 in game seven. They win going away at home. They beat Utah in six, ruining the Jazz forever, basically. The <laughs> Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, Jazz. Yeah, they the got Taren- the Terrence Mann series. And Kawhi is out after game four of that series. And they acquit themselves pretty well against Phoenix. They lose in six games. And the Bucks, I think, were totally beatable with a healthy Clippers team. And it just, I, that's the year that I although, go back yeah, Although to Gian, Giannis did always have their number, though. I, I think true. I think that season that might have went to Milwaukee and just got smoked or something like that. Maybe it was the year before, but they do have tr- they they whatever reason like you were just talking about the Nuggets. They have trouble with the Nuggets and Jokic. They have trouble with Giannis and the Bucks. Everybody has trouble with those guys, but I, <laughs> I I just look back at that year as it feels like so long ago because the NBA crammed so many seasons into so little yeah. time due to the pandemic. You know, 2022, they don't even make the playoffs. And last year, it's like they get there and it's a just a yeah. fart out with everybody injured. And and this is year five of this. And these guys are not 28 years old anymore. They're 33. And the question that I just keep coming back to is, I don't know what happens if those dudes sit down in a meeting with Steve Ballmer and Lawrence Frank. And I, this is the way I would imagine it happening in the movies. They slide a piece of paper across the table. <laughs> And written on the other, someone, Kawhi flips it over. It's like two plus one at 90% of the max. Like, I just don't, I just don't. I, uh, the no, it, no. the it, biggest it'd Steve, wild. It'd be Steve Bummer sliding over a Microsoft tablet, Zach. Okay. <laughs> it It's the biggest unanswerable question in the league right now is what is their reaction? If that is indeed the case, is it just, well, we'll take it to free agency. And, and maybe, like you said, we chose Los Angeles. We're from Los Angeles slash Palmdale in Paul's case. Um, We want to be here. We want to make this work. We feel an obligation to make this work. Or we've seen stars be insulted before and just say to hell with it. That's why James Harden is available right now and or by via trade anyway. So I, I just don't. Kawhi is like inscrutable and doesn't has not really taken extensions before. So maybe he goes to free agency and just figures it out. I'll bet you I'll bet you my gut says Paul George would negotiate in relatively good faith that that the yeah. Clippers could go to him with an offer like that and it wouldn't be met with how dare you it would be met with I get it I want to be here let's make it work but we'll see Yeah I mean look it also depends Kawhi Leonard is comfortable here I mean the, the Clippers have provided Kawhi Leonard with everything he wants so, but as we know, Kawhi Leonard, if he if he does not like a situation, we've seen what happened in San Antonio. Uh, but I think at some point, if you're Kawhi Leonard, you got to look at this organization has pretty much given me everything I want, and I'm comfortable here, and I love being here around my family. I love being near San Diego, where I have a home. Um, at some point, Kawhi Leonard is going to have to make a life decision of whether or not he wants to stay here. So, and I do think they both like Ty Lue a lot. The question is, you know. After this season, Ty Lue has two years left on this contract. I would assume he's going to want to renegotiate again like he did this year. 
Uh, it's he's going to see what the market is. You're absolutely right. And there are going to be teams that are going to check in on Ty Lue 100% because he definitely probably he's outplayed his contract or outcoached his contract. And you now look at the new market that Monty has set. Ty Lue deserves a lot more money. You know, I went through all those teams in the West and they're, they're pluses and they're minuses, right? And like Denver is the biggest plus, best starting five in the NBA, defending champions, best player. Again, lost two key bench guys, one of which closed games for them, Brucey B. It's a big loss. And I went through all the rest. I didn't even mention like who knows what Dallas turns into. I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical that they can build a contender with what they have, but like the Clippers have a lot of experience facing that dude in the playoffs and it was not fun for them. Um, okay. So you'll get better. I think Minnesota is going to have a decent year. Sack is going to win a lot of games based on continuity and just talent and youth improvement. Like all of these teams, you can make arguments other than Denver, which is earned the benefit of the doubt. You can say, well, you can poke little flaws in them, right? Like on that, that's a little flaw, a little flaw, a little flaw. And you can be a Clipper, a bullish Clippers fan and be like, that team's flawed. We're not scared of that team. Look at that. The flawed flaw. But all those teams, you could also, if you choose to be optimistic, you could say you could find reasons to be hopeful that um, they'll be good or exceed expectations. And the bottom line is like you got to beat three of them four times a piece just to get to the finals where the Clippers have never been before. And I don't even think this is a hot, this is not a hot take. I just don't think this team as is can do that anymore. And this is from someone who picked them to win the title the year they formed and picked them to make the finals last year. I just don't think they can do it. I just don't have any faith that these two guys are going to be healthy for a prolonged period of time. And I think the talent around them has, you know, KJ Martin will help and Plumlee's a good backup center. It, it just hasn't sort of, unless man makes a huge leap and that's possible. That's the wild card to me. I, I, I just don't know if they've gotten enough pop from that, that group around them. And some of that group, as I said, has gotten old. I just, I, I look at them and you can you can sell me on all these other teams being vulnerable in theory in one playoff series if the Clippers are healthy and they get some breaks on the other side of it, whatever. It's hard to sell me at this point that the Clippers, without some big jolt of change, can get to where they need to get for that for that Paul George Kawhi trade slash acquisition to have been worth it. Yeah, it's weird. They're gonna need like another I mean, like, look, uh, Kennard was great for them until they he couldn't defend, uh, and they they never trusted Kennard. They just never they just never trusted him. But they need that they need that shooter. Like Kennard lost his confidence, Uh, and then they brought in Eric Gordon, and there were some ups and downs. But really, the guy you traded you traded Kennard, you brought in Eric Gordon. Now you don't have a shooter. You need one of those guys, and maybe that will end up showing its face, like come in the buyout market or something like that. I, I think. If Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are healthy and Kawhi Leonard returns back to that apex Kawhi, as I loved it, I loved how you described that apex Kawhi again. I mean, like, okay, if they play Phoenix and they play Bradley Beal, Kevin Durant, and and uh, book, book and that team, you think a healthy Clipper team can come out of a seven game series against Phoenix? Yeah, I do. I do. I think they can. My point is, can they come out of three of those in the Western Conference? Intact with all of their extremities intact, <laughs> and I just am not sure that they can anymore. And again, I've picked them to make the finals two of the four years that they've been together, yeah. and I'm late to the party. I'm late to the party. I think I stayed at the party too long, 
I, I'm I'm the guy at the party where the host is like, dude, can you get the hell out of here? You've overstayed your welcome. I think I'm late. I think I'm I'm like one of the last people that was like, you know, on the bandwagon, so to speak. Uh, I'm, I've been walking out of the club when the lights turn on with you, Zach. <laughs> so uh, I picked him to, to go to the finals last year, too. So, I mean, I, I understand. I, I think it's just they got to prove it to you now. And, and I'm in the same boat. I do maybe think I'm, there's maybe th- I'm being stupid. Maybe it's just recency bias. Like the last thing we saw were these two guys just not playing again or Kawhi like amping it all the way up and then his body saying, hey, man, we can't amp it up. Or, But maybe it's just bad luck. Maybe it was a bad tweak. Maybe it was something. But I just. I, I don't know. I, don't I just know. I just I just know that I look at Denver and I see what Denver did last year. And I think that's got to be I'm not talking about blueprint as far as how you build a team. It's blueprint as far as like you stick with this these guys and see what we can finally do when we're healthy. Granted, yes, I understand. Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray are a lot healthier. I mean, uh, younger than Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. I get that, but at least you see like if we're healthy. As T- Ty Lue, I think said this at the end of the first round. Like I know we haven't lost a series when our two guys are healthy. So uh, I, I, I just s- I don't want I don't want to hear it. It's it's the it's the Doc <laughs> Rivers. 2008 Celtics starting five still hasn't lost the playoff series. I just, I don't, I don't care. I don't, I'm sorry. I don't care. It's it's great. That's fine. They haven't lost the playoff series, but is that, I mean, sure. Fine. Yeah. Well, they have, I I get it. They lost in the bubble. Yeah. 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 Well, that wasn't under Ty Lue. I think he's talking about under him. Oh, so we have to further qualify this (laughs) narrow (laughs) statement of history. Okay. Well, you know, look, um, I, look, I again, I, I don't know. I'm not trying to make light of it. This is this team has been a team I've been high on, and Kawhi Leonard. I voted Kawhi Leonard MVP it, it, the year that Russ won. Um, let just, me ask you this. I, let me ask you this, Zach. If they don't get James Harden, but they still, let's say, I don't know, Malcolm Brogdon, Malcolm Brogdon, like it's revived or something like that. If they get another guard, point guard of that Brogdon ilk, I guess, does that make a difference? Does that change your mind? Yes, I I want I I thought they were smart to go after Chris Paul and I thought they were smart to go after Malcolm Brogdon. They just they keep cycling through these other in like John Wall and Russ and like Russ was great for them, but I just don't think he's the answer. I think Brogdon would they're they're like looking at the right kinds of guys, um, and and if they don't get Harden, they're going to keep that. That's the reason for hope, right? Is that they're going to keep looking at these guys? And we didn't even mention Bones Highland, which I thought was a smart talent yes, bet right. for the Clippers. Like I thought that was another example of this front office being kind of creative. I just don't think he's going to be the postseason answer in eight months or nine months or whatever, given his his limitations defensively. But yeah, it's it's look, it's a tall order, man. The West is really good. And even if you don't have huge amount of faith in all of these teams being like great 55 win teams, they're all going to be good. And to beat a good team four and seven, like you need your guys healthy and you need your guys healthy and playing big minutes hard. We and didn't that hasn't talk, been we, the case. We didn't even talk about New Orleans. And if Zion comes back and he's healthy and motivated and, you know, in shape, you know what I mean? That's going to be another team that are going to have to deal with. It's and it just maybe maybe not maybe this all amounts to nothing and paul and Kawhi both go back this it, it maybe this season doesn't go great but they both go back anyway but i i it just feels like one of the wild cards that's simmering and and when you combine it with other things like what's happening in philly and you know the cap space situation there you start to wonder but we'll see it's late july lots can happen om young Wasuk, any parting thoughts on the clips anything you wanted to get to that we didn't get to um no i think that's it 
So I, yeah, I think they're just sitting and we sit and wait to see how they can improve the team and if they can or not before they go into camp. And we'll see if this is all conjecture or not with Terrence Mann. All right, sir. Well, I, we will see. And uh, maybe by the time we have our ESPN summit in LA in a month and a half or a couple months or whenever that happens, we'll see. Oh, who's I still on. owe you. I still owe you a steak dinner. I know you do. I forgot about that. You do. <laughs> you do. Well, we can do that. We can do that in September. Om Young Masuk, uh, read all his stuff at ESPN.com on the Clippers. There's a little Rams coverage this week. Om, uh, thank you for your time, sir. Thanks, my man.